As we open God's word now, our Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 32, which is on page 546 in your pew Bibles, a psalm that is called in the superscription, A Maskil of David, or the um, Septuagint translates that, a, a psalm of instruction. That's thought to be the meaning of the word maskil, a, a teaching psalm where uh, David the king now becomes David our teacher who shows us the way to true blessing. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy while you upright in heart. We'll turn over to Romans chapter 4, page 1119 in your pew Bible, where Paul quotes Psalm 32 as support for the doctrine of justification by faith. We uh, just heard that summarized in Romans chapter 3 in our assurance of pardon, just a couple of verses before this. Now, uh, Paul tells us that that doctrine of justification by faith is revealed already in the Old Testament, namely in Psalm 32, listen to these words, Paul in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not 
count his sin. Congregation 506 years ago marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, a time in which, uh, by God's grace, men like Martin Luther would begin to, to question the teachings of, of the Roman Catholic Church on, among other things, how it is that we are made righteous before God. Are we made righteous by something we do, or are we made righteous by something God does? Is our righteousness something that comes from within us, or does it come from somewhere outside of us? These are the questions that Luther began to wrestle with as he he came to see that the righteousness of God is a gift received by faith. That the Christian life, as one Reformation historian summarized, is not about the sinner's struggle to achieve his own paltry human righteousness, but about accepting God's own perfect divine righteousness. That's what Luther came to see. And it was largely through the study of the book of Romans and the book of Psalms from which we just read that Luther came to see this. And of all of the Psalms, as they speak of the sinfulness of man, the forgiving grace of God who gives his righteousness as a gift, none more clearly teach this Reformation doctrine of the righteousness of God by grace through faith than Psalm 32. That's why Paul, in Romans chapter 4, as he's looking for a place to illustrate this glorious doctrine, he goes to Genesis 15, and he goes to Psalm 32. Of all the places where he could have gone to illustrate this doctrine of justification by faith, he goes to the first two verses of our psalm. And so if we would understand the Reformation, we need to understand Psalm 32. A psalm that begins with David's admission that he is a sinner, and we are too, but ends in verse 11 of him and us being called the righteous, not by our own works, but by grace through faith. This psalm has sometimes been called one of the the penitential psalms, one of the, the psalms of repentance where we're taught how to confess our sins before God, and that's not too far off. But this psalm really is not a confession of sin per se, but a psalm of instruction and and celebration of the forgiveness that comes from confession. Psalm 32 is a a teaching psalm and a thanksgiving psalm about forgiveness. Luther said the 32nd psalm is an exemplary psalm of instruction that teaches us what sin is and how we might be freed from it and be righteous before God. In short, he says, our righteousness is called the forgiveness of our sins. All the saints are sinners and remain sinners, but they are holy because God in his grace neither sees nor counts these sins, but forgets, forgives, and covers them. That's what Psalm 32 is. And David teaches us about this glorious truth um, through his own experience of it with a a gospel declaration in verses 1 through 5. And then out of that flows a gospel invitation in verses 6 through 11. A gospel declaration and a gospel invitation. Look with me first 
at this gospel declaration. Verse 1 and the uh, first part of verse 2, those are the, that's the, the portion of the psalm that's quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 4. And this is really the heart of the psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. I'm here, David states the, the proposition of this psalm to, to use the, the kind of language that, that, that we do about sermons. Here he gives his theme statement or his, his big idea of Psalm 32. Verses 3 through 5, he'll, he'll then illustrate it with his own case. But first, I want to spend a bit of time looking at these, these three different ways that David speaks of God taking away his sin in these opening verses. As each of these words that David uses really opens up a different facet of the glory of this doctrine. The first word that he uses in verse 1 is the Hebrew word nasah, translated as forgiveness. This really has the idea of of lifting up or, or carrying away our sin. Here our sins are viewed as a burden on our back that we cannot bear. Boys and girls, some of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, he's got this great burden on his back that he cannot bear. David here is speaking of that burden being lifted off of his back, as it was for Christian at the cross. David is speaking of of our sins being lifted up and and carried away. God lifts it off of our back, and, and he removes it out of his sight. Then second, he goes on to say that God also covers our sins. And this is, this is a word that, that has to do with, with the idea of, of atonement, where in the Old Testament, the blood of, of a sacrifice covers over the sins of the people and propitiates the wrath of God. That's that same word that we use from Romans chapter 3. It, it absorbs the wrath of God. It, it takes it away. It bears that wrath in their place. And then the third word that's used in verse 2 about God not counting iniquity against us, that's a a bookkeeping word that that speaks of how God does not write our sins down in his ledger as if we owe him for them, but he forgives them. He does not impute them to us. And so David says that, that God lifts up our sins and carries them away. He covers over them and he does not count them against us. According to the psalmist, the forgiveness of sins is relief from a burden, the covering over or hiding of a record, and the canceling of a debt. Which, of course, raises the question, if God is holy and righteous, then how can he do this? If our transgression is lifted and carried away, who carries it? If our sin is covered, what has it been covered with? If our debt is canceled, who pays the debt? And the answer to each of these questions is, of course, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the one who carries away the sins of God's people, like that goat on the Day of Atonement, on whom the the sins of the people were symbolically placed, and that goat was then sent away to carry them away off into the wilderness never again to appear before God or before the people. And yet not only that, 
But he has also the sacrificial guilt on the Day of Atonement, on who the, the sins of the people were, were, were placed, who is sacrificed, and his blood is then sprinkled on the mercy seat to cover over the sins of the people. And he is also the one who pays our debt so that it is not counted against us. For the Lord imputed our sins to him so that they would not be imputed to us. Someone has to pay the debt, and Jesus does, so that our debt is canceled. We speak often of the the imputation of Christ's righteousness, where his righteous record is, is counted to us, it's credited to us, but we need to remember that, that our sins are also imputed to him so that the sins that we have committed might not be imputed to us. Um, Spurgeon says non-imputation is the very essence of pardon. The believer sins, but his sin is not reckoned or accounted to him. They are imputed to Christ who pays our debt, covers our sin, and carries it away. Only because of Jesus can the things that David says be true. Only because of Jesus can David be blessed. Actually, that word at the beginning of, of the psalm, that, that phrase, blessed is the one, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and whose iniquity isn't counted against him. Only one other psalm so far in the Psalter has begun with that declaration of blessing. Psalm 1, the psalm that we sang just before the sermon. Where in Psalm 1, David says that the way to be, to be blessed is to perpetually not walk in the counsel of the wicked, never stand in the way of sinners, but only ever and always delight in the law of God both day and night. The book of Psalms begins by saying that's the way to be blessed. And that is precisely what David has not done as we read on into verses 3 through 5. And so instead of being like a tree planted by streams of water, always bearing fruit, Psalm 1, David's strength is, is dried up as by the heat of summer. David has not lived like the blessed man of Psalm 1, and yet the same blessing that is given to that man is given to him because his transgressions, sins, and iniquities are imputed to Christ so that Christ's righteousness might be imputed to him. And Christ will bear the burden of David's sins in verses 3 and 4, feeling the heavy hand of God upon him, groaning under the weight of God's wrath and feeling his strength dried up as by the heat of summer as he bore David's sins on the cross and became sin for him. The physical, emotional, and spiritual agony that Psalm 32 describes, Christ will bear for him so that God's heavy hand might be lifted from David. We could say Christ will sing Psalm 32 for him as the sinner so that David might know the joy of forgiveness. He will become the guilty one so that David might be guiltless. The blessed man of Psalm 1 will become the sinner of Psalm 32 so the sinners of Psalm 32 can be regarded by God as the righteous and blessed one of Psalm 1. 
And all that is required to know this grace of double imputation, our sins imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us, all that is needed to know this grace is faith alone. To confess our sins and look to Christ who bears them for us. And this is what David gets at at the end of verse 2. He says that this man against whom God does not count his sin is a man in whose spirit there is no deceit. That that is um, deceit with regard to acknowledging his sin. To be someone in whom there is deceit is to be one who chooses willfully not to face their sin, but to live in it. Or, Or to ignore that it's there, or to pretend that you are righteous when in fact you are not. That would be to deceive. As Calvin said, to either shroud yourself in darkness or cover yourself with leaves, dealing deceitfully both with God and with yourself. That's what David is talking about. He's talking about not being one who is, is, is filled with deceit. Not shrouding yourself in darkness or covering yourself with leaves, dealing deceitfully both with God and yourself with regard to your sin. The first thing that you must do if you would know this blessedness of Psalm 32 is confess your sin. Do not deceive yourself or try to deceive God as you cover yourself with fig leaves like Adam trying to hide your sin, verse 5. Being silent, verse 3, and not confessing it, but admit your guilt before God as one who has broken his law and repent. And look to the gracious God of verses 1 and 2 who does what he does because he punished your sins at the cross if you will but confess them. That's what David is calling us to do. Verse 5, acknowledge your sin. Don't cover it. But confess your transgressions to the Lord. Don't trust in your own righteousness, refusing to admit your sin but trust in the righteousness of Christ and admit that you're a sinner. That's the only way to know the peace of which David speaks in the rest of this psalm. If you will cover yourself with the fig leaves of your own supposed righteousness, you will not know this peace, but the distress and alienation from God and lack of happiness of verses three and four. Guilt, groaning, Physical pain, lost vitality, absence of joy. No peace. Because peace of conscience cannot be found until renouncing your own righteousness, you confess your sin and look wholly to Christ. One commentator says, this is the prayer of those who standing at the foot of the cross and forswearing all righteousness of their own commit their lives and entrust their destinies entirely to God's forgiving mercy richly and abundantly poured out of the saving sacrificial blood of his son. That's what you must do if you would know the blessing of Psalm 32. Confess your sins and look to Christ in faith. Don't cover them, verse 5, but let him cover them with his perfect blood and righteousness.
Can you see why Luther loved this psalm? Or why it was Augustine's favorite psalm that he had, had them write on the, the, the wall next to him while he lay in his deathbed so that he might read over these words over and over because it is pure gospel doctrine that, that David knows the blessing of peace with God because he confessed his sin and let God cover it, take it away, and not count it to him, but count it to his son. What David does now in the rest of the psalm, having stated this, this gospel declaration, this, this pure gospel doctrine, what he does in verses 6 to 11 now is he, he turns to us, his readers, the church of God, the, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament into whose songbook this psalm is incorporated. He, he turns to them and he turns to us and he invites us to make this same declaration ours. As he preaches the gospel to us in verses 6 to 11, urging us to flee to God for refuge while refuge may be found. It says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach them. He instructs us in the way that we should go and counsels us, verse 8, Perhaps in fulfillment of, of, of the vow that he made in Psalm 51.13 where he said in that, that song that we sang just a little while ago after that, that horrible um, series of, of sins against Bathsheba and, and Uriah when God forgave him, he said towards the end of that psalm, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That's what David said in Psalm 51 and many think that here in Psalm 32, David is making good on that vow. And as he reflects on the forgiveness that God has freely given him because of Christ, he now invites others into that same grace where he will cover them in the rush of great waters. I take that rush of great waters to be a reference to the flood of God's judgment of which David spoke in Psalm 29. That for those who confess their sins will not reach them because someone else will bear that wrath in their place. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. David has come to see that the Lord is not someone from whom to hide, verse 5, but is in fact his hiding place, verse 7, who will preserve him from trouble and surround him with shouts of deliverance. This is what God will do for those who confess their sins and look to Christ in faith. And David is here inviting us into that same safety. He is instructing us in the way that we should go. And he tells us in in verse 9 not to be like the horse or the mule without understanding. Who has to go through the unpleasant experience that David did in verses 3 and 4 before confessing our sin. But tells us instead to simply offer prayer to God now while he may be found. I take verse 9 of that illustration of the horse or or mule to be a reference back to verses 3 and 4 where the the antecedent to the horse or mule is David the king who had to be curbed with the bit and bridle of that extreme chastening in verses 3 and 4. David is saying, don't be like me. Don't be like the horse or mule. 
Um, Dale Ralph Davis paraphrases, don't be like I was. You can avoid the divine pressure cooker. Why should God have to break you? Have a tender conscience, not a hard heart. Don't be dense about admitting your sin like a horse or mule, but receive my instruction in this masculine and be wise. And understand that many are the sorrows of the wicked, but if you repent of your sin, you can know the joy and gladness of verses 10 and 11 that I now know. Those last two verses where he he talks about Steadfast love surrounding the one who trusts in God, being glad and and rejoicing, shouting for joy. He's described the joy of the one who has experienced the forgiveness of sins of which this psalm speaks. This psalm is actually bracketed with with shouts of joy as that word for blessed in verses 1 and 2 can also be translated happy. It's a word that that refers to the joyful spiritual condition of those who are right with God, the pleasure and and satisfaction that come with that. And so because of his forgiveness, David is happy. He tells us that at the beginning of the psalm, and now he, he invites us to know that same joy and gladness at the end of the psalm by confessing our sins and trusting in Christ. He's reminding us that living with unconfessed sin is miserable. It does not leave you joyful. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But forgiveness leads to joy. And Calvin said the highest and best part of a happy life consists in this, that God forgives a man's guilt and receives him graciously into his favor. The happiness of men consists only in the free forgiveness of sins. Do you know that gladness and joy? Christ, the son of David, is here inviting you into it. This joy belongs to those, verse 11, who are righteous, not in themselves, but in Christ. Martin Luther only came to know this joy when he realized that the righteousness of God is a gift and not something that's earned. Before that great breakthrough, his conscience tormented him endlessly, but when his heavy conscience found peace through the blood of Christ, he knew the joy and the gladness of which verse 11 speaks, and he gave his life to preaching that gospel of full and free forgiveness that others might know this joy too. Like David, he gave himself to instruct sinners and teach them in the way that we should go. The only way to be righteous and the only way to know joy. So hear this gospel invitation this morning as you enter in to that same joy. If you do not know Christ but have been deceiving yourself, acknowledge your sin and come to him who takes your sins away, who covers them and who charges them to his account. To replace your guilty groans in verse 3 with shouts of joy in verse 11. If you do know Christ and you do believe this gospel of justification by grace through faith, then heed the instruction of verse 11 and shout for joy. This this psalm is a a call to gladness. 
where joy is not just an option for the Christian, but it is an imperative. Calvin said, wherever faith is lively, this holy rejoicing will follow. And so let this psalm summon you to praise. And if you do not know this joy, then let it lead you to ask whether you know this forgiveness. It is the highest and best part of a happy life, the heart of the gospel and the heart of the Reformation, for which reason we celebrate even this day that Christ has carried away our sins, that he has covered them with his blood, that he has charged them to his account so that we can know this blessing, so that the joy of forgiveness might be our strength. Close now with a prayer of Martin Luther based on this psalm. God, our Heavenly Father, with whom there is grace and much forgiveness, be merciful to us who were born in sin and cannot but sin and fall short every day. Forgive us our many transgressions and account them against us no more, but make us heirs through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son was delivered unto death for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Thanks be to God.